0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment, with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health, housing has an impact on our education, housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods, housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today, and let's get into this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I want to thank you for joining us, and let us get right into our topic. Today, we'll be speaking to Rashida Phillips. She is a managing attorney of housing policy at the Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, our conversation today will explore a recent report released by Community Legal Services of Philadelphia titled COVID-19 Impact on Race and Housing Security Across Philadelphia. I'll let her tell you about herself. So welcome Rashida to the podcast. And can you please tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what do you do and how do you do, why do you do this work?
1: Hi, yes, thanks for having me. My name is Rashida Phillips. I am Managing Attorney of Housing Policy at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. We're a legal services program that works across a broad range of civil legal issue areas. And in particular, um, I work in our housing unit, which provides legal representation to low income Philadelphians who are experiencing housing insecurity um, through eviction, through displacement, through Loss of housing subsidy, um, habitability, and substandard housing conditions, and all other kinds of issues, as well as um, we do policy work at the local, state, and national level around those same issues, and trying to get tenant protections in place and and um, preserve affordable housing in, in the Philadelphia community. Why I do this work? Uh, I because I there's nothing else to do <laughs> for me. Um, like this is. <laughs> This is um, life work for me. Um, housing is, is an extremely, it's, it's an issue that is important for everyone. It's, it, everyone needs housing. Um, everyone needs a roof over there. You know, if there's one thing that we all have in common is that we need housing. Um, and, you know, I came into this work. I, I didn't start off at, at CLS doing housing work. I um, started off actually doing community economic development work and then came into the housing unit over time Um, but it's, it's really just, again, it's the bedrock. It's the, it's the underlying basis for every sort of sphere of health and happiness that people need, um, to be able to live, you know, healthy and, and lives where they're, you know, where they, where they can do what they need to do and do what they want to do. So, so yeah, it's an extremely important issue to me. And it's also one that's personal to me, one that, um, you know, I've had, uh, experiences that are similar to the folks that we serve and um yeah
0: i can definitely resonate with that a lot too i definitely grew up um using um housing subsidy my my parents did and so i relate a lot to the work that i do too with opportunity starts at home and you know through the campaign uh the campaign we speak about these broad policy um solutions we talk about increasing investments in housing. We talk about expanding rental assistance. We talk about creating an emergency fund for families. And so our work is very high level from the perspective of the nation. Like, what does the nation need? to provide affordable, decent and safe housing. Um, But we often say that every place is different and that the needs are different in every location or region. Um, Some places will probably need a bit more supply of affordable housing, while others might need more rental assistance. Um, So can you talk about what the need for housing looks like in Philadelphia?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Philadelphia, um, as you said, you know, every place is different. Um, We're all sort of struggling with needs for affordable housing, accessible, affordable housing across the board, but every community looks different. Um, in Philadelphia, um, you know, we have historically been a city of homeowners. And so um, over 65% traditionally of our population has been homeowners. And so rental housing in particular, because of that has been sort of, um, I won't say ignored, right, but just like the urgency wasn't there to sort of assist rent- renters, as well as just like, the perception of renters, right? Um, the stereotypes of renters was just like, was was very heavy, um, you know, and so just people didn't pay attention as much to the needs of renters until um, around 2008, where um, the mortgage foreclosure crisis happened and really impacted our home ownership rate. Um, so it went down significantly, um, particularly for uh, black and uh, black homeowners and homeowners of color. Who were, um, you know, impacted most heavily by the foreclosure crisis, you know, through subprime lending and, and all those things happening, and so because of that, our home ownership rate went down, and so now the city's about 48% renters, 52% homeowners, and so we now have more renters in in um, in Philadelphia, and so you looking at that factor, and then combined with the fact that Philadelphia has um, for more than five years, been the largest, poorest city in America. Um, Our poverty rate has been over, um, has been about 24%. And so when you combine those factors, right, we have a lot of renters, um, and we have a lot of renters who are low income, and many of whom are paying more than 30% of their income towards their rent. And so there's, you know, there's, there's, it's a, it's complex, right? It's, it's the issue of people need to, be able to access housing that's affordable and that there's not enough affordable housing to meet the needs, but also that um, we're seeing rising rents in our communities. We're seeing, you know, the, I know gentrification is a buzzword, but it is it is something that we're seeing and that's connected to displacement and, and connected to um, low supplies of affordable housing in our communities. So all of these things sort of intersect that, you know, there's both a supply issue, a demand issue, a low, in, you know, an issue of people don't have um, the income to be able to make the rents and to be able to keep up with the rising rents in a community. Um, and then you can also look at evictions and you can look at that as a factor of thinking about stability of housing. And so we have pretty high rates of eviction here in Philadelphia prior to the pandemic. Um, we saw about 20,000 eviction filings each year um, prior to the pandemic. And we, I think occupied the fourth highest um, eviction filings in a country in in terms of of a city. And so when you look at that and then also look at the fact that the people who are being evicted most are Black people, um, and this is not even accounting for income, right? You take income out of it, you still see highest rates of evictions in Black communities. And so when we're talking about housing affordability and housing instability, we really ought to be talking about it as a race and gender issue specifically because the people who face housing instability the most, who face the lowest, um, you know, incomes, um, you know, employment with, with with lower incomes or losing their jobs, particularly as a result of the pandemic, we're talking about Black women um, and their families. And so it's really also a j- race and gender justice issue, one that also connects back to redlining and to, um, you know, sort of historic patterns of redlining that are still present where you can see The disinvestment and um, sort of the uh, conditions that have led to what they call blight that have really, you know, concentrated poverty and substandard housing conditions in certain parts of the city that really align with redlining maps. And so redlining is also just still a very present day issue that um, also impacts uh, the availability of affordable housing
0: spoke about a lot just now, just a lot of things that we'll definitely unpack when we're when we're jumping right into the report, which will, which will be my next question. Um, but everything that you said there, I mean, that we're talking about um, how this looks like in an actual place in a lot of these regions, which looks different in every place that you go. And I love that you brought in in historical context to a lot of this, showing how that how that impacts us today, and really I think hitting on the point that when we're having a lot of these conversations I think what maybe maybe that it doesn't get missed but maybe it's not uplifted enough is the way that we talk about it in the context of its intersections to equity racial equity and how these things are just exacerbated on these levels because you know like housing is one of the main tools that was used to create a lot of these disproportions that we see today and that we we talk about today in the present. So. Let's jump into the report. So you you guys released a fantastic report and it looked at how COVID-19 impacts racial and economic disparities in Philadelphia. And so if you can tell us a bit about what were the report's top findings.
1: Yeah, so we, yeah, we developed this report in response to just wanting to put data and a voice behind what was happening with um, COVID 19 and the intersections of COVID 19 and, and its impact on housing in Black communities in particular. We were seeing, you know, and, and hearing from various sources, right, that the people being impacted most by both COVID 19 infections and hospitalization and death were Black people in Black communities. And, right, we s- also knew what was happening in terms of evictions, that evictions were still going nonstop and that despite you know, various protections, people were still being pushed out of their homes. So wanting to look at those intersections and knowing that there was also sort of causal links between the Black community and, and communities of color seeing those high rates of, of um, contact with COVID-19 and housing and the housing conditions that existed prior to COVID-19 that there was a direct causal link. So we wanted to build a report that looked directly at those issues and and the intersections of those issues. Um, And that one of the important things for us in in doing this, creating this report was that we consulted with people who were actually impacted um, by these things and that it not just be a top-down report that was just data heavy, um, but that we were able to hear and amplify the voices of people who were actually impacted and experiencing COVID-19. So yeah, so some of our top level findings um, were that, you know, again, things that we already knew anecdotally, but that uh, really were worth getting specifics around in terms of data. And so we found that some of the summary of findings were that today, Black people account for 47% of all COVID-19 deaths in Philadelphia and across nearly all age groups. Black residents are more likely to contact COVID-19 than white residents in Philadelphia And and understanding that there are systems of racial violence that compound upon each other in order to make black people more structurally susceptible to contracting and dying from COVID-19, including housing um, and housing infrastructure in Philadelphia. And sort of, again, you know, what what I referred to earlier, the history of redlining and other things that have led to disinvestments in black communities that have made um, black communities more susceptible since the pandemic began in Philadelphia through December 2020, landlords filed to evict more than 2,760 families. And that primarily most of those evictions have occurred, over 78% of those eviction threats have occurred in communities of color. And I believe uh, the, the other statistic around that is that about 58% have occurred specifically in black communities.
0: And again, many of
1: the areas with the highest COVID prevalences are also majority black communities experiencing the highest eviction rates. Research also included a renter survey where we surveyed about 140 renters about the experiences that they were having around COVID-19 and housing, as well as the housing conditions that they were living in that potentially made them more susceptible to um, coming in contact with COVID. And so of those renters surveyed, 17% um, are now behind on their rent since March, 2020, compared to 7% Before the shutdown began, again, making them vulnerable to eviction, those currently struggling to pay rent are about two months behind on average, while almost a quarter of all renters surveyed felt or felt they were forced to move during the pandemic. So illegal evictions happening and, and other things happening during that time. Some of the most prevalent habitability issues cited by respondents to that survey were mice and rats, roaches, flooding and water damage, chipping paint and mold conditions that can cause respiratory issues or lead poisoning that make tenants more vulnerable during a pandemic yeah and and, you know that i can go into two additional findings but i think those were some of our really just top line findings Um, and again we also this this research included focus groups where we had tenants um respond you know in in real time to some of these questions and asking for also real-time solutions about how we address the issues at the intersections of housing and race and and uh, and, and health um, in in the city of Philadelphia.
0: So yeah, as we know, there were racial and economic disparities prior to COVID 19, and the report makes the case that many of the disparities we see are linked to these existing structures of racism. What were some direct findings in the study that showcase the impact of past and present policies that disproportionately impact people of color. I know you spoke a bit about this too, bringing in just like the the history of redlining in communities and things like that. So can you speak a bit more uh, to, the, to that past and present impact?
1: Yeah. So I think what the report emphasizes most, right, is that redlining and the sort of issues connected to redlining are not historical issues. There are the impacts of redlining are not past tense. They're not (laughs) a thing of the past. They are a very present issue. And it it does um, sort of make that connection, again, between um, sort of the experiences and conditions that people of color and communities of color are living in, in particular, um, to structural vulnerability during COVID-19 that made folks more vulnerable to um, hospitalization. And um, infection that are just borne out by the statistics and by the data that we were able to show, you know, just again that Black women in Philadelphia are three times more likely to contract COVID than than our white women. You know, just these kinds of things that that you can link back to again that sort of structural and and racial violence that um, folks have been experiencing in Philadelphia. So really, you know, for example. We see that in Philadelphia, you know, and this kind of links to, again, sort of present conditions, people in the same sort of areas of the city where folks were redlined continue to experience disproportionate amounts of poverty, poor health outcomes, limited educational attainment, unemployment, violent crime, you know, all those other things compared to other neighborhoods in the city that did not, you know, do not have those same histories of, of um, redlining and and historic disinvestment. Another, you know, sort of thing that we focused on is is how many renters in the city are cost burdened, sort of looking at other sources and studies show that 54% of our renters in the city are cost burdened. So what the report shows relying on other sources and other studies is that half of all Hispanic households in Philadelphia are cost burdened, and that's the highest share of any major racial or ethnic group. And then by comparison, 46% of Black households and 32% of white households are cost burdened, meaning, again, that they spend over 30% of their income towards household expenses. And so, again, just, you know, those just very real linkages between the history, the present, and, you know, the future, if we don't do anything to intervene what what the report tries to make the linkages to. Because so often, right, we, we are talking about these issues in, in a snapshot. We're talking about them in the present moment and sort of the present things that are happening and we're not always making space to link it back to historic issues as, as well as systemic issues, right, that have a history and, and also, again, to sort of link it to what we want to see happen in the future. And so the report makes that attempt to do that and to hear from the people who are actually impacted and who know best, you know, what what needs to change, what what needs to be ruptured um, in order to make, make make way for new change and make way for different <laughs> ways of being in the, in the future in our communities.
0: I really like the way that you started off and like that weave that you st- that the, the, the thread that you started off from um, with the with the response there is that a lot of this stuff, I know that we talk about like press, past and the present. But it's almost like the past has had a legacy. And so, and a, a legacy that's just, it's a terrible one, but we still see these things today. So even sometimes when we're talking about the past, it's like, well, the past is still very much our present because right. we're seeing a lot of these things still be the case, right? It's not really, it's like, there's there's also like this, this conversation about language and the way that we talk about things so is just, as you said, we do focus redlining as something that's historic, like something that happened in the past. And yes, it like, it started in the past, but we're very much still there today you know seeing the same maps being able to just transfer over in the same ways that means that we're still there it's right. still the same right and so I just love the way that you that that you kind of like made that statement because I think that it again it just transforms the way that we think about these things because we tend to think about them so much in the past and we know that so much of this stuff It, it there, there needs to be a transformation here and I think that you also pulled that out as well, talking about just the way in which you guys conducted the, this research and wh- who, you cho- who who te- who needs to be at the forefront, who needs to be the leaders in this conversation is the people that are impacted the most. Um, and so even when we speak of um, looking at the report and seeing where you guys landed with um, what the spillover impacts would be and how those spillovers um, from... From housing, because what let's let's do it back here. What really stuck out to me in the report, too, was this line around racism and economic inequalities. It was that the two of those are the most lethal pre existing conditions for coronavirus, and we know that these injustices they spill over to all these other sectors and it really impacts the overall well-being of a community. So right. not just talking about housing, but also talking about just how housing has this impact beyond, which is really what the report was also talking about, about too because when you have something like COVID-19, it just exacerbates the problems that we're already seeing there. Like COVID-19 is just, you know, it's it's really just highlighting these disparities that we were already seeing. And so how did you use that to determine what would be the priorities and the vision that, that we should be looking forward during and after the pandemic? Yeah,
1: so one of the things that we really emphasized in this report, you know, and, and the reason why it's multi part, it's it, it has both a quality, quantitative section um, that is, you know, just around the data then it also has the survey piece, but then it has a focus group piece that um, where we really wanted to not just hear from people about the problems and the issues that they were having, um, but wanted to give them really space to envision and dream and think about a future that was different. Um, And to have a space where, um, you know, a safe space where they can, uh, you know, be anonymous and be able to, yeah, just really share their experiences and, and talk about um, as you said, those spillover effects, how um, COVID-19 and housing conditions together are impacting their mental health, impacting their children, impacting their ability to focus on their work or, or to do their jobs. Um, you know, so just, just, again, how it goes beyond just, you know, again, we, we tend to, and, you know, just because it's not enough time in a day often, we tend to silo out these issues and just sort of talk about them within their own fears, um, you know, housing is one issue, health is one issue, employment is another issue, but being able to put folks into a focus groups, like those silos come tumbling down, like people's lives are not one issue lives um, or not siloed out, you know, so all of these things impact um, people's ability to move through the world and, and be people and feel human and feel loved and safe in their own communities and um, in, in their, in their home, own homes, you know, as, as a lot of them pointed out, home is supposed to be a sanctuary it's supposed to be a place where you can rest and recharge and um you know build and organize your 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 life and your family um and people don't have the benefit of being able to do that when they're always in precarious situations where they're always feeling like they're going to be pushed out from second to you know from moment to moment or um every couple of months threat of of being evicted by the landlord or being displaced because this landlord wants to sell their property and and cash in and make money or because the housing conditions are such that it's triggering asthma for their kids every couple of weeks and they have to go to the hospitals just like all those different things that again really impact people's abilities to to be happy and safe and to to, yeah again to feel human and and um it's just so hard so anyway just like giving folks the opportunity to um share that was just Um, So often in our work, um, particularly working in a legal services organization, we only have space to hear the problem and to focus on the problem and then try to come up with a quick solution for the problem. And so um, wanting to, again, just give folks a space to not have to just focus on the one issue or the urgency or the crisis in front of them, but to be able to think more expansively and to link, you know, housing conditions to more, you know, the individual conditions that they're experiencing to more global or systemic issues, you know, for a lot of folks, that was really a great space to be able to have in a space where they felt heard and seen for, you know, maybe for the first time for some of them to be able to talk about these issues and to feel a little bit of hope that somebody was listening and that there was maybe a a way forward um, with some of this stuff. So so that was um, really something we, again, wanted to emphasize there and and again, to make those linkages between past, present and future and that the past is not past and that these things are layered. And, um, and if we're really going to have solutions that are effective and long lasting, we have to bring in those conditions. We cannot just silo out the present and the present conditions and think of the past as, as cut off from the present
0: what i heard especially in your response is that using those focus groups what you were able to capture is really a holistic view of how these things impact people on their daily lives and their daily well-being because in the focus group you get a bit more information about like what does that impact how does that impact childcare? how does that impact health how does that impact these other um sectors these other things that we might think about as these separate like ideas are separate things that, you know, they, they get tackled separately. It's like you get a you need a health solution or you need an education solution. But, you know, I think that, you know, where, where we want to go or where a lot more people are maybe starting to view this as something that's a little bit more holistic than when we're really talking about the well-being of communities, the well-being of individuals. We're talking about all these parts that actually are interconnected in many ways. And I think that you pull a lot out of that when you talk to the people who are directly impacted. So not only did you all do focus groups, but when I was also looking at the study, I saw that you also used a method called the Black Quantum Futurism Framework. And I was really intrigued with this methodology. I I didn't really hear, I hadn't heard about it. Um, And so I wanted to know more. So as we continue conversations with about racial equity, organizations are having this conversation much more, um, as we know, and this strikes me as a framework that really would help in research. And so can you speak more to this framework and its application?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's such an awesome question. I'm glad you <laughs> thought about that and looked at that. Um, so Black bottom Futurism is a theory and practice that actually I developed with my partner. It's an artistic practice, but it's also a sort of theoretical framework for thinking about time that really draws on afrofuturistic sort of principles of thinking about time. And so if afrofuturism is essentially sort of community and practice and creative, outlet for how Black people can envision themselves in the future. And so for us, the way that I have worked with Afrofuturism is to develop out this Black Quantum Futurism framework that focuses specifically on the time element for Black folks and how Black folks think about and experience time, particularly in within systems that are hostile to them. And it is, you know, so often that because of our ways of thinking about time as linear Um, And as the past, present, and future as cut off from each other, so often Black people in that kind of a construct are cut off from our futures, like very literally, right? When we look at us getting shot down in the streets by police violence or by other forms of violence, um, structural violence, housing violence, all those different ways that we are cut off from being able to access our futures you know, on a sort of linear timescale. And then just quite literally sort of connecting that back to histories and constructs of time Um, that are connected to capitalism, connected to transportation, connected to labor, um, that again have continuously left black people behind on the timeline. So it's really a framework for thinking about that and thinking about um, how um, alternative ways of accessing the future and thinking about time that are more healthy um, for black folks in particular and how this shows up in my work in particular for example, is just thinking about people who are evicted right, and the different kind of time constructs that they come against when they are at risk of being evicted. And so we're looking at the court, right? The time that if they have an eviction hearing that they have to show up to court is often out of alignment with um, the realities for folks who are being evicted. Um, And so if you have to be to court at 8.45 a.m., right, and you don't live anywhere near the courthouse, and um you know you got to take your kids to school first or you have to do you have to take a special type of transportation to get to the court um all of those things are impacting time and so if you don't show up to that court hearing on time at 8 45 on a dot and your name gets called right you are then being evicted three weeks later four weeks later you know so just looking at the ways and and that that's just one court system let alone if you're caught up in uh, two or more court systems if you're caught up in child welfare court, you know, uh, system and your your child welfare case depends on your housing case and vice versa. But those two time constructs are out of alignment with each other. Um, so really just looking at those issues and how it shows up like very practically in my work, again, is like one of the issues that um, I'm working on is, is the issue of eviction sealing. So getting eviction records that follow people into the far future, again, another time construct, that impacts them based on something that happened in the past that actually may be remote or may not even have anything to do with their ability to be a good tenant, but that past record is locked into the past. And so often you're not able to give additional information that really gives context to that past record. And so looking at solutions that open up access to the past enable us to add more information to the past, enable us to change the relationship of the past to the future, doing that by correcting those records or by creating policies where landlords have to consider things outside of just that past record, but can bring in additional information is solutions that speak directly to the time constructs that are embedded in our systems. Again, we often don't look at or think about because we take for granted that, you know, the past, the present, the future are, three different things that don't interact with each other generally. Um, So yeah, so that's what Black Quantum Futurism is about. And so one of the things that we were able to do with this research was we were able to work with community-based consultants, which were three Black women researchers who had already engaged with the theory and practice of Black Quantum Futurism um, because I've written, my partner and I have written books about it. We've also written uh, different things, but we also have projects that have included this framework. Like we have a um, project called Community Futures Lab in Philadelphia. Um, and so, so yeah, so they drew on the, that framework, drew on framework, drew on specific questions that we asked through that project for this research report. So we have a lot of questions that we call oral futures questions that are like oral history questions, but really have a future focus in asking people to envision and sort of manifest the conditions that they think, you know, would be useful for them to thrive within communities. Um, and so they really use that framework in structuring the focus groups as well as some of the activities that we have through the Black Quantum Futurism sort of practice. For example, we have an activity called Housing Journey Maps. Um, and so with Housing Journey Maps, we ask people um, in, in sort of workshop form to draw out or think about their housing journey over time and how that journey you know, impacts them today and how it, um, you know, might impact their future prospects as a renter or as a homeowner or whatever. So those are always profound, um, especially when we're able to do it with a group of people, because it also has people examine their privilege or relative lack of, you know, and somebody who grew up with stable housing, right? It, it, you can see how it has impacted their, some of, some of their life trajectory versus someone who maybe didn't grow up with stable housing and who maybe had to move around a lot as a child or as a, as an adult, um, and how that sort of impacts upon them in the present. So, yeah, so that's in a nutshell what the Black Quantum Futurism Framework is. And, and again, we were very privileged to be able to work with community-based folks who were experimental and open and, and understood that sort of traditional research practices were not always useful for certain types of information that we were trying to seek or for being able to connect with folks who are impacted like those those sort of traditional research methods don't always lend themselves to folks being able to talk about or envision the future or or yeah or talk about solutions
0: you gave such great examples about the court system or how it works in evictions or how it works just on these other levels where i think that you'll hear someone tell a story and they'll tell you well this is what happens i couldn't get this by this deadline and this doesn't work because of this and this doesn't work because i had to get this paper here i had to work here that doesn't work in this this thing so you're it's like we're we're creating such these impacts that last a lifetime in people's lives for these barriers that are just really unfair when we look about The way that they're done and i think that you're just you just communicated it and put it in such a framework that's just so amazing to look at because i again i think that you can hear this time and time again when you're even um, reading or listening to people's stories about how they got from a to b in a certain situation and you see all these barriers you see all these ways in which time um, really creates a conflict for them to really you know fix an issue or resolve or get to the next step so just incredible thank you so much for sharing that and uh thank you so much for that and hopefully a lot of other folks will go and look into that method um and pull apart and, and also use it and what they're what they're using in their research as well and talking about too another thing that we that we may need to discuss in ways that we're kind of like having conversations around racial equity at this time which a lot of organizations are doing um but for Opportunity Starts at Home, one thing that we've been looking at is just communication and how do we better communicate the tremendous harm that has been done to black people. Um, And I noticed through your report that you guys used a lot of terms that were like racial violence, housing violence. Um, And so how do you think about language in the way that we use it? And when exploring language, what are some ways we can better articulate more directly and capture more fully a system that continues to hurt people of color? Because when I hear things like racial violence, to me, it it makes it a lot more like impactful and present. So how are you thinking about language?
1: Yeah, so I'll say for this report, a lot of the language that you see in the report was actually the language of the research consultants who primarily drafted the report um, and, you know, with, with, my input, of course, and input of my colleagues. And we chose to sort of leave it in there. And, you know, I agree with the formulation of, of these things as, as violence in particular. And I think it is high past time that we name that it is violence. Um, we often think of these things as, as you know, we, I, I guess in our society, we formulate violence as often as being physical, and as something that, you know, is very stark. And we don't often think of, you know, housing conditions as being violent, even though they are physical, right? They are, they do impact people physically and mentally and, and, and all the same ways that hitting someone or punching them in the face or shooting them, right, impacts them, it's just a different way that it plays out. But you can clearly see, right, when we look at statistics around health conditions, around health for black people and people of color, um, life expectancy, sort of health conditions that we often face in our communities, um, all of those different things. Um, Clearly, you know, these things are violence. They are violence against people. They cut people's lives off um, very literally. It's not an abstract thing. (laughs) People are dying um, because of their housing conditions and because of other interrelated conditions. Um, Again, we can think about Gun violence that is cutting lives off in our communities, whether through police or through, you know, uh, intercommunity conflict, housing impacts that, and certainly impacts um, all those different things or lack thereof, um, or disinvestments from communities, um, not having grocery stores or um, medical institutions in our communities that we can access directly. All of those things cut our lives down, and, and if that's not violence, I don't know what what else is, right? So. Definitely, language is something that um, I think as a policy um, advocate, and um, it's something that we have to pay attention to. Words mean things. Words can sway people. Words can push people away. Words can bridge. Words can um, break. So we have to be very intentional about our language. And language can make shifts. Language can make people think about things in a different way. So utilizing that power and leveraging what words can do, and if we start using different words that mean specifically what, what is happening versus this sort of abstract language that, that works to mask <laughs> what people are living through and, and working through, um, that can only be helpful. So, so language is something, and also just as a writer and as a cre- creative person, um language is is very meaningful to me and 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 how we wield it and how we utilize it is important
0: what you captured there especially with this like naming things the way that they are and i just really appreciate the way that you you really you really showcase how that really is violence right like the way that we do think about violence is Physical, We think automatically like a fight or you get bruised or something like, you know, we, we look at violence as such a physical sense in that way. But even in, in the same physical sense, a lot of these things that we see, a lot of the ways in which people are harmed by policy is violence against them. And just like you said, it, it literally cuts their lives shorter, like it is violence. And so calling it exactly what it is, I think, makes it just even more impactful when we're having these conversations as well. And this is something that I think a lot of organizations are, are trying to uh, trying to do better, trying to look at better. And our next question kind of goes into that into that realm too of what organizations could be doing at this time. And so I know for us, um, when I met you, we were working with the with the Shriver Center. We got into the fellowship with the Shriver Center. Um, and it was myself and two of my other colleagues and we created this, team um this racial equity team for the work and you were coaching us on that and so just to give a little bit more clarification The Shriver Center Institute, um, they do a fellowship where they bring in advocates uh, from all these different um, sectors, um, all these different lines of works to train around racial equity and you have a racial equity team. And in that racial equity team, you're working on a project and you have a coach that helps you along um, with that team project and is helping the team along with the fellowship as you're in it Um, and it's ongoing. So you have these conversations with the group um, and the Institute. Um, as you move forward with the work as well. And so in that same line of talking about language, talking about how organizations are looking at racial equity, um, so many are seeking guidance um, in this work, in this moment as well. And so what would you say to those organizations and what are some recommendations and steps and advice that you would give?
1: Yeah, I think, You know, there's a lot to say about that, and there's a lot that um, organizations need to do. And as you suggested, right, there's whole training courses and um, programs and and different things that sort of help organizations to be able to align themselves around um, race equity and and racial justice within their organizations and all all of the different things that need to be in place. It's not just about stating an intention or, or having... A mission statement that has a line about racial justice, but it is something that um, needs to work its way through and through the organization um, uh, down to its very core. So I think there's a lot of work that many organizations need to do. I don't know of any one organization that is where it needs to be, Um, and that's because organizations are ultimately made up of people, and people right are at different places in their relationship and understanding of race equity and racial justice. And so, um, you know, to some extent, it starts there. It starts with the people within the organization and not just like wanting to put a performative flair and face on racial justice by adding it into an organizational mission statement. Like you have to start with the people um, within the organization and understand what's happening at home. Um, you know you got to clean your house up first before you know you externalize your 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 performance space um, and so it's like you know understanding that within each of our all of our organizations are racist <laughs> you know they, they have um organizations themselves um, in their history and, and how they come about and who they're led by and who has been excluded traditionally from these organizations and and how they extract from communities in many ways like all of us are dealing with that and should be dealing with that and should be facing those things and not have, you know, all, they say, you know, with the pandemic and sort of the racial uprisings and, and the murder of George Floyd, that organizations are having having all these reckonings, but it's like, not really. <laughs> like a public reckoning is not a reckoning, honestly. It's like, um, sure you can be called out, but that's not really leading to the core change that needs to happen within organizations. And so I, I don't really see the reckoning as, as um, being one that is um all that useful because it's just again it's like a social media reckoning rather than like um organizations really at their core facing what they are and, and what they need to do to change that so um i think it starts with with the people i think it starts with an understanding that racial equity and racial justice is not separate it's not a thing that you just prioritize one year and then that's it like or that you again that you put in your mission statement and you think you're done like it needs to be a change at the core of these organizations in terms of who they are um and and understanding that and starting inside with with the people um and building up people's capacity you know like our like your organization did and my organization did send, you know it starts with things like sending folks through RJI and and bringing back the learnings back home and having those conversations within. Um, My organization has done some great things over the past couple of years. Um, We have created a position for a director of racial justice within the organization that um, is helping to um, start to look at these issues and to start to align and to raise awareness around what, what it is that we need to do to move forward in authenticity around a racial equity mission or agenda. And again, to understand that it is not separate, it is not something that just pops up when there's another police murder. Um, It it is something that we need to be dealing with, talking about, thinking about every single day. Um, And that's part of all of our work, especially because most of the people that we serve are, you know, and this is not across the board, of course, other people serve different populations, right? But um, at the core of um, a lot of the issues that our organizations work on or deal with Um, is race, Um, you know, at the end of the day, like, sure, we can put the veneer of poverty on it. um, And that is, of course, linked in and and there's linkages there. But it is not. um, Yeah, race is so much at at underlying so much of, of what happens in our society today. And again, those historic connections to slavery on up to redlining on up to Jim Crow, all of those different things um, we need to understand how our organizations have benefited from that, how it benefits today from that, and what it needs to do really to move authentically forward into a future of equity. Um, it, it has to be a full-time thing. But I'll leave it at that. <laughs> There's lots more I could say about that. but
0: Yes, I really appreciated where you went with the conversation, too, uh, because it really leans right into to the next question. <laughs> I see that we're having these these conversations and they're ongoing and we're thinking and we're and and orgs are are reaching out and and you know trying to figure out this racial equity work, right? It seems like there's a lot of trying to figure out what's the next steps, what do we do? How do we integrate it more? How do we talk about it? What's the language? What's the report? What's the mission statement? There's a lot of like conversations about what organizations should be doing and moving and how we move forward. And I think there is a conversation here too with like, how do we make sure that we're being authentic in this moment? Given the nature of the moment um, that a lot of this has come about because you know people died like you know a person had to die people have been dying and continue to die and this has become where these, of where this like now this new move um this what feels like a new move for many people are coming from and i think that it's it's valid to question you know whether these moves will actually produce the real leaps that we need for racial equity for generations to come because You know ultimately we want real change we don't you know kind of what you were saying there um too is that like these things have always existed like it's not you know we you know i I, you know there's a fear i think about um what might just be like a social media or just like a moment of you know like okay we're gonna be active now but what's the real work that that we really need to do um to ensure that we're not just being performative in this moment that is really an authentic moment and what are some measures that organizations can implement and i think that you touched on a bit of them too that really ensures that we're producing an authentic transformation in the work that we're doing yeah i mean i
1: think some of the things i talked about earlier just like investing yourself into this work like it has to be through and through You have to put, you know, our society talks with money. (laughs) Time is money in our society. So put your time and your money into these causes. And that means, you know, and and again, not everybody's going to get it right. You're not going to get it right the first time. I think folks within our organizations, our leaders have to be willing to be vulnerable, have to be willing to make mistakes and and have those mistakes public and, and embarrass them. You know, like they have to be open to that. I think so much in our culture, right, we try to avoid those things and and try to avoid embarrassment and tension and not understanding that those things are healthy. And and you have to have tension in order to break through and and move forward and change things. And so I think it starts there. I think it starts with being vulnerable organizations and and leaders within those organizations, understanding that they're not where they need to be um, and making the investments, putting their money where their mouth is. Funders, putting their money where their mouth is backing these efforts and and changing their priorities. Um, And again, not just for one year, like forever changing their priorities to fund work that is going to bring about equity, um, lasting equity, and not just be, uh, again, sort of based on crisis models that only bring us one step forward or half a step forward once we resolve that one person's issue, um, but things that are really gonna move us forward community by community, you know, forward into the future, into the work, um, into a change future that is not just a continuation of past harms. So those are some of the things that I think, but again, I, I think it starts with values. It starts with people. Um, it, it cannot be a top-down thing. It can't start start with the organizations as an organization and, and what it's presenting to its funders or to the public, you know, or, or to externally facing people. It has to start within Um, both within people themselves and then within the people within these organizations that are doing the work.
0: Absolutely. So Rashida... Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. And what we will do is we'll make sure that we link the report into the description for folks to look at the report as well as link to the organization to just see what else you guys are up to, what else might be coming out of the pipeline for you all. I just want to thank you so much for taking some time out to speak to us. And the report is incredible. The information is so great. And just thank you so much for, for participating today.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. Also, I look forward to seeing it when it comes out.
0: Thanks. Bye, everyone. All right.